0: Um, if you guys want to stand with me and turn to Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians chapter six, and if you were here on Wednesday, you will recognize this passage because pastor Powell preached out of this exact same, uh, set of scriptures. And so I'm hoping to maybe just add a little bit on to what he was talking about and let it all kind of flow together. So Ephesians chapter six, we're going to start in verse number 10. It says, finally, my brethren be strong in the Lord. Now, turn to, or skip down to verse 15, and this is where I'm going to get my title from. Verse 15, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to, to study your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, oh, oh God. Lord, let our hearts be soft. Let the seed fall on good ground and bring forth fruit in due season. We love you and thank you and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the many, many, many things I love about the Word of God is how that there are times when you read a passage, and it'll speak to you in a certain season of your life. And then at another time, you'll come back and read that exact same passage and get something totally different out of it. And it's not that one's necessarily contradictory with the other, but when the word says that it's alive and active right quick and powerful it means that because this is the voice of god that is speaking to his people and so just like as a parent when i speak to my children i use different tactics and i use different ways to explain them to them based on their their level of maturity based on their level of understanding and so it is with the word of god that sometimes when we read something God will bring something new to our mind based on where we are and what we need. Often when I've read verse 15 where it talks about our, our our feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in my mind I've always thought of it as that we're set for battle, but we do it in peace. Meaning that wherever we go, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we should bring peace with us. And, and I do believe that is true, and I believe that that is still true, but... As I was kind of preparing for this message and thinking about what I wanted to preach, I guess you could say God gave me a little deeper revelation into what it really means by the gospel of peace. So that's what I want to talk to you this morning about, simply the gospel of peace. Now, if you were to go back and listen to uh, all the messages that I've preached since I've been at this church, more often than not, you would likely hear me make a reference to some historical event. I love history. I love reading about about past people and and the things that they were able to overcome and how the ingenuity of some people brought significant changes to the world. And Specifically, you would hear me talk about military conflicts throughout history. I I love to read stories of, of soldiers who were able to push past all of their limits to overcome all the challenges in front of them in order to complete the message. You you would likely hear me tell a story like that of uh, Master Sergeant Roy Benavidez. A gentleman from Texas who grew up poor, who when he was in Vietnam voluntarily jumped out of a helicopter that was barely hovering above the ground with no weapon, ran across an open field while two hundred enemy soldiers were firing in his direction. He ran across to to find men that were down, that were injured, his brothers. And over the course of the next couple hours, he single-handedly grabbed 12 injured men and brought them back and forth across the field of fire to put them on a helicopter. He was shot five times. He had shrapnel from a grenade lodged in his leg. He was stabbed in the side by an enemy's bayonet. And yet he still found a way to just keep pushing and keep pushing to get the job done. In late 2004, Afghanistan had its first ever democratic elections. And not only was I able to be there for this, but I was actually at one of the election sites watching it unfold. I literally got to see history in the making. But I have to tell you that as much as I love history, as much as I love studying things of the past, I have come to know that mankind has been stuck in a cycle of violence and hatred that continues to grow worse and worse. I like so many other people, am tired, I'm spiritually exhausted from seeing the endless wickedness of this world that doesn't ever seem to be getting any better. Our world is searching for peace, desperately looking in any direction to find peace and many people are so desperate for peace that they are willing to pay any price to get it you see we see the images of men women and children lying dead in the streets in the war going on in Ukraine and our souls cry out no more make it stop I imagine if I were to survey every person in our world, you would be hard-pressed to find someone who says they don't want peace. Not all that long ago, the Ukrainian president Zelensky made a video addressing to President Biden. And he told Biden, he said, we need a leader of the world. And that leader of the world needs to bring peace. The world is looking for someone to bring peace. So what, what's the big deal? I mean, shouldn't we as Christians also be wanting peace? I mean, shouldn't we be standing side by side, shoulder by shoulder with those in the world calling for peace? Believe it or not, the answer to this question could very well have eternal consequences. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2-4, through 4, Paul addresses this. Listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in the darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Daniel also addressed this in Daniel chapter 8, verse 25. Speaking of the Antichrist, this is what he says. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. A minute ago I said that there are some who are willing to pay any price to get peace. I wasn't exaggerating. The chaos that currently rules our world is not accidental. The masses are being conditioned. The groundwork is being laid for the Antichrist to step on the scene and declare that he alone can bring peace to the broken world. And as I mentioned earlier, there are so many hearts looking for peace that they will be more than willing and ready to accept when someone stands up and declares that they can bring peace to this broken world. But you see, what the world does not recognize, and I'm afraid that sometimes we as Christians forget, is that there is already peace on earth. You say, how? How can you say that there's peace on earth when we look around and there's nothing but war and violence? Look with me at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. It says, And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Verse 10, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people.'" And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. Every year around Christmas time, which, unless you're in my house, you'll hear this all the time, you'll begin to hear songs about Christmas. Songs like, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, or, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I challenge you, if you've never just sat and actually read the lyrics to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, read it. Just read the lyrics, and you will see why that song is talking about the angels singing. Because here comes Christ to the earth so that man will not die again, so that we could live forever and we could have eternal life. Christ came to bring peace on earth. As I was preparing for this message, I decided I would turn to Brother Google and see what he had to say on the topic of peace on earth. So I just Googled. I said, hey, Google, what is peace on earth? There's all sorts of articles. There were videos. Uh, And I watched one of these videos, and it was just random people throughout the streets being asked. Um, You know, first they were asked, do you believe peace on earth is possible? And it was pretty split. About half said no and half said theoretically. But when they were asked to define peace, the, the main theme that kept coming out was peace is when we can all do whatever we want to do and not be judged by other people. That's peace. Pe- peace is, is when I can um, lay on the beach and, and, and drink my beverage of choice and not be bothered and not have to go to work. That's how they defined peace. So I said, okay, okay, let me, let me refine the search a little bit. Let me say, how do Christians define peace? Again, lots of articles, lots of videos. I clicked on one. I thought, surely in this video of Christians describing what peace is, I'm going to hear references to God, right? References to Jesus, to, to Calvary, to, to salvation. Do you know the, one of the main things I heard is, it's when my mind can finally rest you know, and I can relax and I have to think about the cares of the world. It's when, and one of them said, it's also when I can lay on the beach and relax and not have to do anything. That's how they defined peace. Now it makes sense why Daniel said in chapter 8 that by peace, the Antichrist would be able to destroy many. Because if we, as children of God, can't even define what peace actually is, How could we ever expect to recognize the lie being offered by the Antichrist? You see, the biggest threat that faces the church is not the world. It is ignorance to the truth. You see, because you could come to me right now and you could tell me that I am not the father of my three daughters and I would look at you like you're stupid because I know that's true. You can never convince me otherwise. Never. But unfortunately, some of us have such a casual, distant relationship with the Word of God that we hear people saying stuff on YouTube or hear hear people saying stuff at work. That sounds good. It sounds appetizing. And we will let that lodge within our spirit. And before you know it, we have traded the truth for a lie. So, what did the angels mean in Luke when they said peace on earth? Now, to, to completely understand this, you actually have to go back in time a little bit to Isaiah. And I'm, I'm going to read a verse to you. Most of you already know what verse I'm going to go to Isaiah 9 and 6. We've all heard it, we've all probably quoted During Christmas time, we see it in all our messages. But you need to understand something about Isaiah, about what's going on in this time frame. You see, just like now, the people in Israel were having great turmoil. There was constant fighting by new countries and powers and armies that were rising up. And Israel was constantly looking around the earth to find people who they could partner with to protect them from the next big threat. They were continuously making allegiance And alliances with the world because they thought that they could offer them peace. So Isaiah being the prophet had to come to Israel and had to tell them what the actual plan was supposed to be. So in verse 6 of of chapter 9 it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace now we of course know that this is speaking about Jesus but the Jews of the time did not and they were constantly looking to the next leader that maybe they would be the fulfillment of the scripture turn your attention toward the monitor here and we're going to watch a real short video
1: The highest king wields a sword of judgment by which he will save those who trust him. And Isaiah's book and ministry center around one moment in Isaiah's life where he actually encountered this king's divinity. Isaiah saw God Almighty seated on a throne while heavenly beings cried holy, holy, holy. And as Isaiah saw the enthroned Lord of hosts glistening strong and pristine, Isaiah heaped woes upon himself, for he knew he must perish for what he had seen, for he and his people were untrusting, and it seemed Isaiah was correct to predict the destruction of his soul. For like a sword of judgment, one of the heavenly beings carried from the heavenly altar's flaming bowl a holy, burning coal, with which he would touch Isaiah's lips and judge him for his sins. But the coal did not destroy Isaiah, instead it saved him. The king took away his guilt instead of bringing his destruction. And that is because of where the coal came from. It came from the altar where sins are atoned. It came from the place of sacrifice where judgment brings hope, where forgiveness is offered, though punishment is owed. Isaiah's lips were made clean so that he might be a carrier of God's kingly decrees, which is why, after being saved by judgment, Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. And the message this king would have Isaiah bring is that God the highest king, was going to bring salvation by wielding against Israel his sword of judgment. God's people needed Isaiah's vision because they were truly untrusting. They were worshiping false idols, oppressing the poor, and making faithless alliances with pagan countries. And this faithlessness and idolatry is most clearly seen in Ahaz, the king mentioned at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. He received word that an attack was mounting against him and Jerusalem, and his heart shook within him. So in fear, instead of trusting in God's protection, he would go and seek the help of the evil Assyrians. But God sent Isaiah with a word of correction. If Ahaz trusted God, the attack would stop. He needed to believe that God sat on the highest throne and could easily foil their enemy's plots. But Ahaz would not listen to Isaiah's words. Instead, He went to the Assyrians, paid them for military aid, and trusted in earthly kings instead of Ahaz's heavenly king who could actually save. So Ahaz would be betrayed. God, the highest king, would use the very rulers they trusted in to wield against them his sword of judgment. But God would provide another leader whom Isaiah predicted. A king called Emmanuel, who would be hailed as wonderful counselor and prince of peace. And it seemed Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, might be that king. For he tore down the idols and broke his father's evil treaty. But what would happen when news of the advancing Assyrian army once again reached the ear of the king? Would he, like his father, seek the assistance of a foreign country? Would he put his trust in an alliance with Egypt? Or would he listen to Isaiah's prophetic wisdom? As Isaiah told his father, so he now told his son. If he trusted God as king, their enemies would be undone. Well, Hezekiah listened to God's words and put his trust in the highest king. He would succeed where his father failed, so God's sword of judgment miraculously turned against the Assyrian army camped outside the heart of Israel. But soon after, Hezekiah's trust fell back upon earthly rulers when he was visited by messengers from the king of Babylon. He boasted in his riches, all of which were given to him. He gloried in his wealth instead of God, his king, who deserved the recognition. And so Isaiah told him that as God sent the Assyrians, he would also send the Babylonians. God, the highest king, would use the very rulers they trusted in to wield against them his sword of judgment for her kings would continue to be evil. They would continue to worship idols, oppress the poor and the widows, and fail to trust that God would prevail over their rivals. So through Isaiah, God speaks of great destruction and trials. Babylon and her great army would have an inevitable arrival. The sword of the Lord would destroy Israel and take them into exile. The throne would be empty, the temple defiled. Yes, Israel would be punished. But with just as much assurance, God also promised to save his people through someone Isaiah called the Servant. This is the same king spoken of to Ahaz and Hezekiah, the one who would be called Emmanuel, the one who would be God's Messiah. And the name we are given for this savior is Cyrus. This mighty Persian king whom Isaiah spoke of would bring Israel back into their land, for he would conquer Babylon and set them free. God would take the sword of judgment from Babylon and give it to Cyrus. God, the highest king, would defeat the very rulers they trusted in by wielding against them his sword of judgment. But Cyrus, like Hezekiah before, was not the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies about the servant of the Lord. Instead, Isaiah promised that God's final servant would save Israel in a way reminiscent of the coal placed on Isaiah's lips. As Isaiah was saved by the altar of sacrifice, so Israel would be saved through punishment. But unlike with the Assyrians and Babylonians, the sword of judgment would not come against them. Instead, God, the highest king, would use the very rulers they trusted in to wield against himself the sword of judgment. Jesus, the servant, would bear our transgressions. Jesus, the king, would take our afflictions. Upon Jesus, God would lay our iniquity. Upon Jesus would be our doom. For though we have gone astray, Jesus would heal us by his wounds. We'll stop it there. Isaiah's words.
0: I I can already tell I'm not going to be able to get through all of my notes. But the reason I wanted to show you that video is, is because for as long as sin has been in this world, the natural tendency of most people, when they feel afraid, whenever they feel that they're being threatened, is to turn in any direction where they think they can find peace and safety. This is the story of the prophet Isaiah. That king after king after king after king would fail because they all ended up looking outward for peace instead of looking upward for peace. So I need to get into what is peace. Got a couple minutes left, so let's go to John chapter 16. I'm going to read through these two passages pretty quickly. I'm going to wrap all of this up. Because this, this part here, what I, what I am about to, to show you here within the scripture, if you can understand this, if you can take this and apply it to your life, your walk with God will be strengthened like never before. Chapter 16 of John, starting in verse 29. Says, His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Verse thirty one. Jesus answered them, Do you believe, or do you now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Now, Paul's right here. What is taking place? Jesus is yet again letting his disciples know that the hour was going to come where he was going to leave from them and that they were going to be scattered. And he knew and in that moment when he was gone that their hearts would be troubled. So what does he tell them in verse 33? He says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Back up to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15, says, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may, be able, uh, may, may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me because I live, ye shall live also. Now go over to verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. But he says in verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, if we read these two passages with the world's definition of peace, it would make absolutely no sense. We see Jesus telling his disciples on one hand, you're going to have tribulation." You're going to be persecuted. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have those who hate you. But on the other hand, he says that you're going to have peace. The world will look at this and say, that's that's contradictory. You can't say you're going to have peace and then say you're going to have trouble. That doesn't make any sense. But it's because how God defines peace is not how the world defines peace. Peace is not... The absence of trouble. Peace is knowing that God is with you in your trouble. See, don't allow the world to to tell you that you must not be doing something right for God because look at the struggles you're going through. That's not the metric of whether or not you're doing the right thing. But what God is saying, don't let that trouble steal your peace. But know that I am with you in Your peace, You see, peace is knowing that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Peace is knowing that the enemy may come against me, but the Lord will raise up a standard against him. You see, God's peace says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemies, for when I fall, I shall arise. God's peace reminds me that though I am pressed on all sides by the enemy, I can lift up mine eyes unto the hills where my help comes from. God wants you to know that you don't have to be afraid because your peace is in knowing that Christ has already overcome the world. You see, I opened this message with Paul's letter to the Ephesians that they needed to put on the whole armor of God. So how does having your feet covered with the gospel of peace help you fight the enemy. How is peace something to be used in battle? I'll tell you. Because there will be times in your life where you know that you were called to do something. You were called to speak to someone. You were called to go to a place. But in that moment, the enemy comes in and says... Who are you to tell them? Don't you know that you had some of the same problems? Don't you know that you've made mistakes? You're not qualified to speak on behalf of God. You can't do that. You're you're not a good enough speaker. But here's what happens when we put on the gospel of peace. As we slip on those shoes, what we're saying is, devil, you're right. I am not good enough. I have made mistakes, but the ability to keep walking is because God's peace surrounds me. Because He has overcome the world, I can keep stepping one after another after another. Because God's strength is what allows me to stand in the face of the enemy, I can continue to the next battle and to the next battle. Because my victory is not defined by my righteousness, but by His righteousness. We will never be able to do what God has called us to do if we are constantly looking to the world for peace. If you are always looking to your job to give you more money. I can't come to work. I got to pick up some extra shifts. I need a little extra money for vacation. I need some extra money because I want some new clothes so I can't help Uh, teach a Bible study because I I have to work to provide for my family and 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 listen I'm not saying that you shouldn't work I'm not saying you shouldn't provide The, the scripture is very clear that we are to provide for our families but what I am trying to tell you is that your job is not what gives you the provision that you need it is God who gives you the provisions that you need and we need to take heart to that because whether I get fired tomorrow or whether I get promoted to the CEO tomorrow, it is still the same person who is giving me my provisions. And last time I checked, he owns everything. So my position in the world's eyes doesn't determine if I'm going to be able to make it. It's my creator who defines whether I can make it. And let me tell you one one more quick thing here, and I'm going to get into three application points. If you heard nothing else that I said, please hear this. Peace is not an emotion. It is a fruit. Peace is not an emotion. It's a fruit. You see, emotions change by the minute. Emotions Are dependent on your circumstances. Emotions can lie to you. Emotions can be confusing. But peace is not an emotion. Galatians 5.22 says. But the fruit of the spirit. Is love. Joy. Peace. Long suffering. Gentleness. Goodness. Faith. Meekness. Temperance. Against such. There is no law. And no fruit. Is produced overnight. You see, fruit requires certain conditions to be able to grow. So let me give you the three conditions that you need in your life to allow peace to grow and mature within you. Number one, soil. All plants that are producing fruit need soil that is rich in nutrients, that is rich and vitamins before a fruit tree can produce its first fruit it must be able to lay down roots in healthy soil this is why scripture tells us time and again that the seed needs to fall on good ground that in due season it may bring forth fruit you see the seed is the Word of God the ground is right here it's our heart we have to put our heart in a position ...that is able to receive the word with gladness. And we have to remove the three D's that will destroy the seed. We must remove every doubt, every disbelief, and every distraction. You see, sometimes we say that we can believe God, that we trust God... ...but we sometimes forget to remove all the distractions. And then after a little bit of what time we find ourselves in a completely different area... ...no longer believing... Because we've been so distracted by our circumstances in the world that the soil has become hard. Yeah. Number two, water. All plants require water. Paul said some plant and some water, but God gives the increase. If peace is the trust and assurance that God is with us, then watering, the watering process is the constant reminder of who God is. You cannot trust God to do for you what you haven't seen him do before. What I mean by that is, you can't say, I believe God will provide for my needs if you don't first know that God is a provider. What the watering process is, is our praise and our worship. It's that constant adoration toward God. It's reminding yourself that God, you are the first and the last. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the one who was and is and is to come. You were before the world began, and you shall be after the world. There is none beside you, none before you, there shall be none after you. Church, you don't understand, if you, if you don't get in your soul the majesty of God, you cannot walk in the peace of who He is, because if your heart is troubled, it's going to turn to the thing that it trusts. If in your heart you have said, I know that God is the author and the finisher of my faith, then my heart will trust in Him. Praise and worship is not an option. Praise and worship is just as much for you as it is for God. God doesn't need your words. He wants your words because it strengthens you to be able to worship and follow Him. We need to water. Okay, last one pruning it's easy to look at the first two and say yeah okay I believe that I believe that you know I need to receive God's Word and be happy about it okay no problem I I need to worship God yeah okay that's easy got it But every plant every uh, garden needs to be pruned my wife uh, this, this year decided to do a garden in her backyard and It looks good. She has spent a lot of time uh, tilling the the ground and and putting fertilizer in the ground, making the ground healthy first. Before she ever put the first seed in, she worked on the ground week after week. She laid that seed in the ground and she went and she watered it every day. But imagine what would happen if after all of that work, all of that, that time spent in the garden, putting the seed in and watering it, She sees the first thing sprout from the ground. And then she says, okay, my job is done. And walks away and never comes back to the garden's attended. What's going to happen? Weeds are going to begin to poke up. They're going to wrap themselves around that, that fruit. Eventually, that plant will produce less and less fruit until it becomes barren. You see, without the pruning process within our life, The distractions of this world will make us less and less fruitful until we become barren. Let's all stand.